We good? Okay. Man. That'll wake you up. All right. Let's go ahead and pray and get started. Heavenly Father, um, we uh, come into this room this morning as a people loved by you um, and so thankful for your moment-by-moment care of us and discipling of us in all the different ways. Um, and so we, we, we bring this 45 minutes before you, Lord. Uh, we ask that you would work in our hearts, that you would um, give us humility, give us understanding, uh, give me clarity in my teaching, uh, as this is, there's a lot of complexity and um, uh, just a lot of weightiness for, for many in some of these topics. So I pray that you'd, you'd give us the strength to navigate this in a way that helps us understand uh, your will um, and your, your word even better and how to, to be people anchored in your word, but um, uh, winsome in the way we live our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start off, um, we started talking about this uh, position paper of our denomination last time, and it, it touched a little bit on just the dynamics that are often talked about on the subject of homosexuality and transgender, of just the whole thing about, can someone be born that way? Uh, did, God, um, did God make me gay is a question that is often asked. Um, does, does he make them this way? There's <clears throat> one fancy phrase for this is genetic determinism. Um, you know, the question is, for some is, how can this feeling that feels so natural and normal be wrong? Uh, for many who struggle with same-sex attraction or, or um, gender dysphoria, which we'll hopefully start getting into today, um, it just feels so natural um, to them. So how do we, how do we reconcile um, what the Bible says about what their experience is. And um, I wanted to humbly <laughs> try and speak a little bit to that. I'm relying pretty heavily on Nancy Piercy. She came out with a book a couple years ago called Love Thy Body. I highly recommend it to you. Um, the subtitle is Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. And um, I feel like she has some helpful points um, on this specific question. So I want to give sort of a biblical response to that question, and I'm going to step out of my lane for a little bit and give a little bit of a scientific response. I'm mainly just, though, channeling Nancy Piercy when I do that. Um, it is true that our sexuality can feel very natural. Um, one person, there's a quote of someone who struggles with same-sex attraction. They say, um, uh, and I'm going to start with a biblical response. Uh, she said, I had dwelled on those thoughts, those same-sex attraction thoughts, so much that they felt so much a part of me, as real as my own name. But we also have to remember as we think about what the Bible teaches, that not everything that exists today reflects the way that God created the world. Um, just like the fall taints our physical bodies, I mean, just even the fact that all of us here are dying right now, we're moving towards our death, that's, that's a result of the fall. We were not originally designed to be people who died. We were designed to be people that lived forever with God here on this earth, and thankfully that is our future. Some, though, are born with physical ailments, um, with their limbs or their hearts or, or all kinds of disabilities people can be born with. 
Um, and as I think Mike Newkirk mentioned last time, the noetic effects of the fall, the, the fall affects our minds and our hearts as well. And you see this um, throughout Scripture. So Ephesians 4, which Dan preached on last week, and then the text he has to, or yeah, the text he had last week. Um, you know, you know, us no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds and put off the old self corrupt with deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Romans 12, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Um, there's this call to not only, to part of um, the renewing that Christ does in our lives is the renewing of our minds, which assumes that there is brokenness in our minds and our hearts. And uh, Romans 1, when it's talking about those who've kind of given themselves over to that futility, one of the things that they do in that is they start dishonoring their bodies. And that's um, you know, something that we see, especially when we talk about um, homosexuality and transgender, that that's, that's literally what happens. Um, and I found Sam Albury's quote was very helpful kind of to summarize this whole point. Desires for things God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not how God has made me. Sam Albury is someone who struggles with same-sex attraction. Um, and I thought that that was a great summary. So the more important question is not where did this come from, but how can God work through it? Um, you know, you think of John 9 where the disciples are like, who sinned, this man or his family, that he was born blind? And Jesus says that's the wrong question. It's how can God work through this broken situation? Some have experienced, we'll get more into this probably a little bit later, but some have experienced a lot of freedom um, from their unwanted desires of you know, homosexuality or gender dysphoria. But other, for others, it's kind of been like Paul's thorn in the flesh. If you remember Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, he has this thorn in his flesh that he begs and pleads for God to, to take away from him. And God doesn't take it away from him. Um, and then he, he's, you know, as Paul has matured, he, he realizes that God is using it in his own wisdom to, to keep him dependent on, him, on, on Christ. So that's a little bit about kind of a biblical response. Scientific response, there's identical twin studies, uh, 71 pairs of identical male twins where one of them, you know, identified as homosexual and only 9.8% of the time did the second one identify as homosexuality, which is not statistically significant. Uh, Francis Collins, who's been named America's most prominent geneticist, he says, sexual orientation is genetically influenced but not hardwired by DNA. And whatever genes are involved represent predispositions, not predeterminations. That's a really important distinction. In short, we, we don't have to accept genetic determinism. And so Nancy Piercy, she goes on after she, I got those quotes from her. She says, a predisposition to things such as depression, alcoholism, drug addiction, and heart disease may be genetic, but most people would agree that we are morally responsible for how we respond to our genetic heritage. Locating a genetic link can help us be more compassionate towards people. I think that's a great point. Um, but genetics don't tell us if a behavior is right or wrong, good or bad. And, and something else that she talks about is that genes are not fixed. Uh, life experiences can trigger biochemical messages that 
turn them on or off. That doesn't mean we have the ability to control our, dream, our genes at will, but it does show that they're not fixed and they're not unchangeable. For example, brain scans of someone who has trauma, a brain scan of them before trauma therapy and after trauma therapy shows um, often changes in their brain. That's this idea of neuroplasticity. So, like I said, jumping out of my lane for a minute to, to get a little scientific, um, but I'm relying heavily on Nancy Piercy there. Any, any questions on that? I did not. I did not. Any further thoughts, questions? Mm-hmm. Um, but that not everything we experience is uh, the way God made us to be. And I think for some people it's a stumbling block because they think of sin in, in terms of behaviors I have chosen mm-hmm. that God disapproves of. But for people who have a long history of, of struggling with Mm-hmm. And therefore, it doesn't seem to fit under this category of sin. Absolutely, and that's why the position paper spends so much time um, talking about desire and um, uh, concupiscence, because that's 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 why some. Um, you know, because it can just, it feels so natural, um, then it, it doesn't, be, it's not sin until it's chosen, but, um, you know, we talked about at length last week, and that the position paper goes into, even, even the sort of natural longing for anything that's not God's desire um, is still an, a distortion. It's still um, an example of the way sin has distorted me, whether it's chosen or not. Uh, maybe it's just original sin and just the brokenness of this world. But yeah, that's a good point. We have to remember that. It helps us have more compassion on those who struggle. Ivan, were you? Collins, Francis Collins. Oh, he is the head of um, the Human Genome Project. Could be. Again, I'm, out of, I'm stepping on my lane, like I said. I, I, I'm just quoting Nancy Piercy at this point. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. All right. I'm going to jump back into uh, the PCA position paper that we, we got through. They have 12 statements. We got through seven of them last time. Um, so marriage, image of God, original sin, desire, uh, concupiscence. I'm sure you all used that word a bunch this past week. And then temptation, and then sanctification. Statement eight is about basically the righteousness, the perfection of Christ. The reason they include this statement is because the argument is often made um, because since Christ was tempted in every way and yet without sin, um, 
isn't it okay to say that someone's temptation towards you know, something like same-sex attraction, the fact that they have these temptations, well, Christ was tempted without sin, so it's okay for me to have these temptations. And then the argument then would be that it's, it's not that bad to identify themselves with it. And so they felt like there had to be a little bit of clarity given on what does it actually mean in Hebrews when it says Christ was tempted in every way and yet without sin. Jesus never sinned. He experienced morally neutral temptation from outside of him. So we talked about um, temptation, that there's two kinds of temptation. There's temptation from outside and temptation from within. Um, So he experienced temptation from outside of him, trials and the devil's entreaties. He He did not experience temptation from within. He did not have disordered desires. He only had the suffering part of temptation where we also have the sinning part. Christ had no inward disposition or inclination unto the least of evil, being perfect in all grace and all their operations at all times. He had no, yeah, deceitful desires or, or disordered desires that the Bible clearly says we need to seek to um, have renewed through the Spirit. Nevertheless, Christ endured from without real soul-wrenching temptations which qualified him to be our sympathetic high priest. Christ assumed a human nature that was susceptible to suffering and death. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It would take a whole class to be able to unpack that in all its entirety. That's really getting very deep into Christology. Um, But uh, any questions on that? Any thoughts or questions? It's a good question. Uh, I, would, I would assume that the, the temptations there are, are coming from without. He's, he's in a situation of um, being um, from the outside, uh, the soldiers and, and, and whatnot, trying to take his life, and he's wrestling with that. Any other thoughts, Mike? Yeah. I, know that, I know that you dealt with this a lot in a committee this past summer.
Well, that's a good point. That's a, that's, that is a great question, um, David, that I don't have a thorough answer to. I don't know if anyone else, want, else besides Mike wanted to speak to his question. Um, Yeah, I think you got to be careful with, with the word fear because, you know, is, is, is fear sinning? You know, there's how many times does the Bible say don't fear? Um, and so I, I, I see what you're saying. I just, I know that it, it could be more complex than that. Um, but that's, that's, yeah. Yeah. Right. But there, yeah, there could be a sense that it's a healthy, understand, you know, a healthy fear of the whole situation. But, Yeah, I'm going to move on. Um, I, I'm going to, yeah, punt on, on that question, essentially. It's a good question, and I think we've given it some thought. I'm going to keep moving. Um, so then uh, the next two, so identity, it's going to talk about identity, and then number 10 is going to talk about language. So those kind of go together. So identity, this is the other hot-button um, issue. This is where it gets more controversial. Our identity as in Christ is most important. To juxtapose identities rooted in sinful desires alongside the term Christian, for example, calling yourself a gay Christian, which um, is something that had been growing in popularity even in our denomination, and so they felt the need to say, hey, there's, there's, there's something about that that we feel is not in line with how the Bible talks about being human and being Christian especially. Um, that they wanted to speak into it. And so they said, to juxtapose identities rooted in sinful desires. Uh, so they've kind of established now that it's a sinful desire. And then to have your identity be in that sinful desire is inconsistent with biblical language and undermines the spirituality that we are new creations in Christ. Nevertheless, we still need to talk about our sins and struggles and not ignore them. Again, I'm paraphrasing here. Like I said last time, there's some of these where I'm just kind of condensing it for the sake of time and argument. So all of this is condensed. 
Moreover, we recognize that there are some secondary identities that can be legitimately affirmed. Your maleness, your femaleness, your nationality. These serve to magnify the glory of God and his plan of salvation. Those are secondary um, identities. And so Rosaria Butterfield, she says, how can any of us fight a sin that we don't hate? Hating our own sin is a key component to doing battle with it. At the same time, we need to separate ourselves from the sin we hate. And so that would be one of her arguments on why the term gay Christian is not um, helpful. And I've already given that Sam Elbury quote quote that kind of speaks to that as well. So I'm going to jump right into statement 10 then as well because it goes right, follows right along with that. We affirm that those in our churches would be wise to avoid the term gay Christian. Although the term gay may refer to more than being attracted to persons of the same sex, the term does not communicate less than that. For many people in our culture, to self-identify as gay suggests that one is engaged in homosexual practice. At the very least, the term normally communicates the presence and approval of same-sex sexual attraction as morally neutral or morally praiseworthy. Even if gay, for some Christians, simply means same-sex attraction, it is still inappropriate to to juxtapose this sinful desire or any other sinful desire as an identity marker alongside our identity as new creations in Christ. Nevertheless, we recognize that some Christians may use the term gay Christian to, uh, or you may use the term gay in an effort to be more readily understood by non-Christians. The word gay is common in our culture and we do not think it wise for churches to police every use of the term. I think that's an important point that they make. Our burden is that we do not justify our sin struggles by affixing them to our identity as Christians. Churches should be gentle, patient, and intentional with believers who call themselves gay Christians. Encourage them as part of the process of sanctification to leave behind identification language rooted in sinful desires to live chaste lives to refrain from entering into temptation and to mortify their sinful desires. Any thoughts, questions on that? Then they talk about friendship. And I think this, yeah, is another important move that they make. And we, this is part of why, not the only reason why, but part of why we talked about singleness two weeks ago, two or three weeks ago. We affirm that our contemporary ecclesiastical culture has an underdeveloped understanding of friendship and often does not honor singleness as it should. The church must work to see that all members, including believers who struggle with same-sex attraction, are valued members of the body of Christ and engaged in meaningful relationships through the blessings of the family of God. Likewise, we affirm the value of Christians who share common struggles, gathering together for mutual accountability, exhortation, and encouragement. Nevertheless, we do not support the formation of exclusive contractual marriage-like friendships. Um, So there's some, uh, you know, gay Christians who kind of have these, it's basically marriage without sex. Uh, nor do we support same-sex romantic behavior or the assumption that certain sensibilities and interests are necessarily aspects of a gay identity. We do not consider same-sex attraction a gift in itself, nor do we think this sin struggle or any sin struggle should be celebrated in the church. So that's just speaking to some of the ways that um, can easily come about when um, sort of over-affirming a gay identity. 
And then they, fi- they finish with repentance and hell. We affirm that the entire life of the believer is one of repentance, where we have mistreated those who struggle with same-sex attraction or with any other sinful desires. We call ourselves to repentance. Where we have nurtured or made peace with sinful thoughts, desires, words, or deeds, we call ourselves to repentance. Where we have heaped upon others misplaced shame or have not dealt with well with necessary God-given shame, we call ourselves to repentance. I think that's so important. Uh, we spoke a little bit last week, and I hope we all can agree that the church has, has not done a great job in its history at loving um, those with um, you know, sexual brokenness in any way. Um, especially those who struggle with same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria. Nevertheless, as we call ourselves to the evangelical grace of repentance, we see many reasons for rejoicing. We give thanks for penitent believers who, though they continue to struggle with same-sex attraction, are living lives of chastity and obedience. These brothers and sisters can serve as courageous examples of faith and faithfulness as they pursue Christ with a long obedience and gospel dependence. We also give thanks for ministries and churches within our denomination that minister to sexual strugglers of all kinds with biblical truth and grace. Most importantly, we give thanks for the gospel that can save and transform the worst of sinners, older brothers and younger brothers, tax collectors and Pharisees, insiders and outsiders. We rejoice in 10,000 spiritual blessings that are ours when we turn from sin by the power of the Spirit, trust in the promises of God, and rest upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and glorification and eternal life. So that's, that's the 12 statements. We did the first seven last time, then the last now. Any other final questions on those statements um, before I transition to talking about transgender? Um, I will say that at the end of talking about transgender, which we're not going to finish today, and that's okay, um, I'm going to try to get more practical and I'm going to kind of combine practical thoughts on how to move towards those struggling with same-sex attraction with practical thoughts on how to move the, towards those struggling with gender dysphoria um, kind of together. So instead of doing kind of both of that with, with homosexuality and then both of that with transgender, I'm just going to kind of combine at the end some thoughts on just caring for people. So, All right. Let's move on then um, to transgenderism. Uh, trans, transgender rights were on the fringe for a long time in, our, in society, but now they've become mainstream. Uh, sociologists think that 2013 was the tipping point where it kind of became more mainstream, and, and part of that was because of the success of a Netflix show called Orange is the New Black that um, kind of normalizes uh, transgender. And then you all remember the Caitlyn Jenner um, cover in 20, 2015 is where it really got very mainstream with that cover. And then the movie Danish Girl, which is a, the story of the first um, person to successfully tra- transition. Um, Facebook has over 50 gender categories. Um, as Truman argued that we talked about a couple weeks ago, um, you know, yes, it's mainstream now, but this has been a slowly uh, building um, reality. Uh, just so many different uh, fountains that have, the streams from those fountains have led to where we are now. 
legislation is growing in our society to change the law to allow people to self-identify when it comes to gender without the need for any transition or medical intervention. It's all just based on how they self-identify. There's been a, a massive increase in adolescents and teenagers expressing gender dysphoria. Um, in the last 10 years, we, I don't have the ability to get into all the reasons why they don't really fully know yet um, what all is contributing to that. There's a lot of hypotheses. So, um, you know, the idea of who am I, that question has now turned into who do I identify as. It's just this idea of chosenness over givenness. It's just becoming more of the reality uh, that, that our society has. I even, I was talking to someone recently uh, and, and learned that um, even in the Christian world, uh, churches are now having rebaptism services for those who have transitioned. Um, so they, they rebaptize them as their new identity and their new um, person, if you will. Um, so they have a rebaptism service. Um, but remember that as we go through this, and this is a challenge to myself as much as to all of us, is to this is not just an abstract sort of exercise of, of um, talking about something that's out there. This is something that's impacting. All of us, and I know several of you in here who uh, this is impacting you in very personal ways, um, all of these issues. Uh, so it's not just an issue to be debated. These are real people that we're talking about, real image bearers of God. Um, and personally, I've ha- I haven't had a ton of experience. Um, I- I've had one friend who struggled with same-sex attraction um, who I've walked with a little bit. Um, but I've, actually, I've only interacted with someone with gender dysphoria a little bit. Um, I, I don't have much experience with it, but I know some of you have much more experience than I do. But either way, it's important to, to talk about and think about these things. I think it's probably most helpful to just start with some definitions. So uh, biological sex, it's the definition of a person as male or female based upon their sexual organs, their reproductive capacity, and their chromosomes. And that's important when you think about the next definition of gender identity or your gender. It's a person's perception. This is the definition, at least in the transgender world, a person's perception of having a particular gender, which may or may not correspond with their birth sex. So if you hear someone who has transitioned um, talk about themselves, they will admit that biologically they're still the the other gender, the other sex. Um, They know that, they recognize that. So like transitioning isn't a full, you know, there can be mastectomy, there can be, it's it's largely just hormonal, taking hormones um, that, that, that change just the way your body appearance, there's, there's plastic surgery that's done to change your appearance. Um, but they'll, you know, one person has said, I'm, I'm a man between my legs, but I'm a woman between my ears. Um, and so, you know, the, where it's gotten is that, and this is from Nancy Piercy, she says, when a person senses dissonance between their body and their mind, we're at a place now that the mind wins. The mind trumps the body. And we'll talk a little bit more about that reality, especially as what the Bible, what the Bible says about that. Um, cisgender is the way a, you know the trans community would um, 
speak to someone whose biological sex and their gender identity match up. Um, gender dysphoria, sorry, that's a little small. The discomfort or distress a person experiences due to a sense of mismatch or incongruence between their gender identity and biological sex. Gender reassignment or transitioning, it's, a, it's medical intervention beginning with puberty blockers if it's appropriate and cross-sex hormones. Surgery can include complete hysterectomy, bilateral mastectomy, chest reconstruction or augmentation, genital reconstruction, and certain facial plastic reconstruction. And then I briefly mentioned last time intersex. Uh, this is important to, oh, sorry, yes. Dysphoria? That's, that's a good question. Um, I know there's debate on whether homosexuality is, is accepted in like the, you know, the same-sex world, and, and there's actually disagreement on that. People have said, no, actually, there's plenty of people in that world who are very fine with that. So I, I'm actually not aware of that. That's a great question. Right. Okay. Okay. That's a thank you for clarifying that. What? Yeah. Gotcha. Yes. That's a great clarification. Um, so yeah, some of these are used by in the transgender community. Some are not. That's that's a helpful clarification. Um, so intersex, intersex conditions are diagnosed and treated distinct from transgender and the two should not be conflated. That's what, um, that's a really important point, that it's, it's a whole different category, intersex. Intersex is a term that describes conditions in which a person is born with ambiguous sex characteristics or anatomy, gonadal, genital, or more rarely, it's very rare where it's chromosomal, um, the chromosomes don't show it. Usually, if, 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 gen, if um, through their genitals it doesn't show, their chromosomes usually show. Um, that do not allow clear identification as male or female. Um, the reality of intersex is often used um, in the trans community to bolster the claim of just the reality that gender is non-binary. Uh, one of the things Nancy Piercy says is that's actually a self-contradictory claim because intersex is a biological condition and, you know, the average trans activist insists that biology is irrelevant. And so it's kind of self-contradictory. Intersex people are, are perfectly, and she also has done a lot of research and on kind of interviews with the intersex people and, and they are perfectly comfortable adopting either a male or female gender identity and are not seeking a genderless society or to label themselves as part of a third class. So if you really dig into people with, who are intersex, um, the reality for them is that they are happy to kind of be assigned a gender. That the word assignment of gender originally came out of the reality of intersex and, and having to assign. Uh, Non-binary, an umbrella term used by those who don't identify as male or female. Uh, transgender, describe those whose gender is not the same as or does not sit comfortably with the sex they were at birth. It's often shortened to trans. And then z, zem, zer, a gender neutral pronoun used to replace he or she. It's sometimes with an X. 
I'll talk a little bit at the end. Um, it probably won't be till next week, though, on sort of how do we, as Christians, uh, navigate, you know, when someone wants us to use a different pronoun. I'll give a few thoughts to that. All right. So I want to dig into sort of what the Bible says. Yes, Brandon. Whatever, yeah. You all hear that? Gender fluidity is a, another important definition. All right, so Bible, I kind of want to talk about the biblical position on this, but just as importantly, I want to talk about biblical posture. It's one thing to know and to be able to articulate, okay, this is what the Bible says about this, but it's another thing to be able to take those biblical truths and have a posture that the Bible also um, talks about. Um, and, uh, and ha- hold these truths in a loving way. Uh, but I did want to start with the biblical position. There's no verse that, uh, there's no verse that says, thou shalt not transition from a man to a woman, um, but neither is there a verse that says you should not struggle with anorexia or no, no verse that specifically talks about gun violence. Um, you know, there's lots that we can draw from the overall scripture um, to have a strong position on this. So I'm going to kind of start more broadly and then get specific. And I'm probably just going to go for one or two minutes because we're almost getting to our time. Uh, This is crazy how time just flew this morning. Um, But I'll at least get this far. Genesis 1, it's always a good starting place for a lot of um, things. So it says, then God said, let us make man in our image. So Adam is the Hebrew. Um, So it's just kind of this general man, humanity. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And then notice one of the things that allows us to image God. This is sort of a a written in poetry form, this part of Genesis 1. And it's now going to show... Part of what imaging God as humanity means is male and female, he created him. So one of the things at stake in all of this is how to image God in the way that God has designed us to image God. Um, Part of that is creating us male and female, and I'll get into a little bit more of sort of how that connects to the bigger story of Scripture. So there's an undeniable connection between being created in the image of God and being male and female. Um, And there's obviously... There, there's no distinction between, you know, biological male and female and identifying as male or female. 
So that's before the fall, so you could argue, okay, you know, the fall happened, and so we're dealing with a fallen world, and, and you know, we got to maybe adjust that some. Well, Genesis 5, which happens after Genesis 3, it actually reaffirms the same language. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them uh, man when they were created. And then um, Jesus, in the Gospels, affirms that language as still um, relevant. Have you not read that he who created them from, and the Greek word there for from has this sense of it's something in the past that has current, present implications. From the beginning made them male and female. Uh, so biological sex versus gender in the Bible. So Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 1 it moves from using ad, the adjectives male and female to the nouns in Genesis 2, man and woman. Therefore, a man shall leave and then hold fast to his wife, or the, the word for wife there is the same word as woman. The principle, then, is that a person's biological sex reveals and determines both their objective gender, what gender they in fact are, and certain key gender roles. <clears throat> and so the, the Hebrew language of the Old Testament, as the Old Testament continues, it expresses this dual reality at every stage of human development. Son and daughter is distinguished, boy and girl, brother, sister, young man, young woman, bridegroom, bride, father, mother, father-in-law, mother-in-law, uncle, aunt, manservant, maidservant, prophet, prophetess, prince, princess, king, and queen. It's just kind of trying to show throughout, um, especially the Old Testament as it kind of carries out that creational distinction that it continues that distinction at every level. Um, and then I'll, I'll just stop with this one. I'll, I'll explain um, embodied souls. We, the Bible talks about humanity as embodied souls. We have souls and we have bodies which are distinct. You know, Jesus says um, you can kill the body, but you can't kill the soul. When he's saying, don't be afraid of, of people who can kill the body but not the soul. So there's the distinction, but there's also an integration. Um, the soul is the soul of the body, as the body is the body of the soul. And so that, that's kind of speaking to this reality that you, uh, biblically speaking, the category of being a man trapped in a woman's body does not jive with, with the, the anthropology of, of the biblical anthropology. One example of this is Psalm 139. And I'm getting a lot of this from a guy named Robert Smith, who's, who's done a lot of thinking on the biblical stance and all this. For you formed my inward parts, David speaking, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully, wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. When my frame was not hidden from you, when I was being made in secret. And so that word I, that appears twice, it's him talking. It's his personality. That's who he is. And there's just this, there's um, this, an intimate connection between who he is as a person and his body. Um, that's just an example in Scripture. And Robert Smith says, There is then no person or soul or spirit that has been created independently of the body and then placed in the body, or perhaps in the wrong body. That's, that's Gnosticism, which I'll get into later when, um, especially the New Testament speaks a lot against Gnosticism. So that's all I got for today. Uh, got lots more on that. Um, next week, 
Sunday school will be shortened because the first 20 minutes will be uh, for families to explore the new educational space, the new children's wing. And so we're not going to start until uh, like 9.20 or 9.25 next week. Um, so hopefully we can get through the rest of it next week. But if we don't, we'll just, we'll just keep pushing. I, I don't want to rush through this. This is important stuff. I want to be talking about it. So I didn't leave room for questions. I mean, I'll give maybe we have one burning question. I, you can at least ask it, and we can chew on it for a week. Any questions? Okay. Father, thanks for this chance to discuss these things. Help us, Lord. These are complex issues that we're still learning so much more about. Um, but we thank you that we have the Bible that has been with us for millennia and has been such a source of encouragement and help. Um, that is a light, uh, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So, Lord, would your Bible continue to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path? Um, and would we be able to understand the Bible in such a way as your people that we can show to those um, who, who do not follow your word how much of a light it is to the path of life and how much of a source of life and encouragement it is, um, mainly because of, of Jesus uh, and the, the freedom and the, the salvation that come in him. And would we be a people that can... Uh, take that the, that beautiful truth to our world um, in need of a Savior. Pray in his name. Amen.